if you have your Bibles, will you turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 15. This is the sixth in our series on the pilgrim life. And this morning I want to consider with you the fruitful Christian. We've looked at a number of uh, the Christian in a number of ways, the faithful Christian, the praying Christian, the growing Christian, and so on. Now this morning, I want to consider with you the fruitful Christian, and we will read chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. <clears throat> These are the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus says in verse 1, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch, and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, then ask whatever you wish and it shall be done for you. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Just thus far, may God bless again the reading of his word. Now let's pray together. Father, we have this great passage before us in John chapter 15. <clears throat> we desire that we might grasp it and understand it. So give us an understanding heart and mind, that we might receive your word, and that it might bear much fruit in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, here is a picture you can see quite clearly in, given to us in these verses of a vine and branches. branches. And you all understand what that looks like. The branches are connected to the vine. They're not over there somewhere and the vine is over here somewhere and separate entities. No, the vine and the branches belong together. They go together. Jesus is the vine. He says that in verse 1. I am the true vine. And we believers are the branches. Disciples of Jesus are the branches. The branches, the disciples, the believers are said to belong to the vine. They are connected to the vine. You notice how it's put by John in verse 2. He says, every branch in me. Every branch in me. 
And what that is simply raising immediately for us is that there is an expectation of a connection to Jesus. That if the branches are in the vine, then there should be some production. There should be some evidence of life. There should be some fruit to prove that there is life. So the branches, verse 2, are expected to produce fruit and to bear fruit. Jesus says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. So there is an expectation of the branches connected to the vine that are supposed to be producing fruit to be fruit production, producers. Now, there are two consequences associated with that expectancy. The first consequence is this. If the branch as Jesus says in verse 2, does not bear fruit, then the vine dresser, the father, verse 1, my father is the vine dresser, then the father, the vine dresser, removes it. So, if there's any branch that does not bear fruit, it is removed by the vine dresser. Notice the language of verse 2, he takes away. That's a, a very strong word to mean to cut off. To cut off. It's the word iro, which means to destroy, to do away with. So here's the first consequence. If there is a branch or branches that do not bear fruit, the vine dresser, who is the father, he cuts those branches off. That's the first one, the first consequence. And certainly a removal from the vine causes life to cease. There is no life. That's the first consequence. The second consequence, you'll notice in verse 2, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. And that word, it's a different word, he prunes, kathero, it means to make clean. I've often been, or wondered what verse 3 is all about. Because in verse 3, Jesus says, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Now you know what that verse 3 means because Jesus has just used the word to uh, prune, which is the word to make clean. So Jesus is saying in verse 3 to his disciples, already you are in the pruning process. Already you are pruned, you are clean. Why or how? Because of the word that I have spoken to you. So the disciples have already and are experiencing this pruning process. Every branch in me that does bear fruit, he prunes. Why? So that it would bear more fruit. So the pruning process becomes necessary for more fruit production. It's not to say there's no fruit production, but in order for a continuation and for more fruit to be born, this pruning process takes place. And the disciples are said to be clean because of the word, which is the instrument in the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's like a, a, a horticulturist with pruning shears. The pruning shears are the instrument in the hand of the vine dresser or the horticulturist. So too the word of God is the instrument by which this pruning, this cleaning process is taking place or is happening. So the pruning shears do the work of cutting back this growth on the branch so that it will be more fruitful. 
and more productive. So pruning is simply the removal of unnecessary branches, perhaps, in order or growth in order to stimulate more growth and more uh, fruit. Simply put, it's just a cutting process. It's a cutting back process. Now, you know, one thing I know about God's Word is that it is like a sword that is double-edged, that cuts. And if you are a Christian, you know precisely the cutting edge, the power of the Word of God. It cuts us when we are disobedient. It convicts us when we sin. It it does something to us. It is able to penetrate into the very recesses of your heart and your life, this word, and cleanse away the, the garbage, the trash, whatever it is, the sin in your life. It's the word that has the power to cleanse us, to purify us. So the pruning process, you can see, is a very desirable process because it produces more fruit. And yet the in and of itself represents a painful process. It's not a very pleasant process. But removal, removal, verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. That is a permanent process. So here are two branches. The one is non-productive and the other is bearing fruit. But in order for the branch to bear more fruit, it must be pruned back, but this branch which is dead, which has no fruit, is cut off and removed from the vine. The other branch is not removed from the vine, it remains in the vine to receive all the nutrients and all the life from the source that it has and that it's connected to. So you have two processes going on here. One is a cutting back and one is a cutting off, a removal of the dead branches and so on. So we discover immediately in the words of our Lord Jesus Christ that bearing fruit in verse 2 requires this pruning process, this cleaning, this cutting to take place. But to be taken away, to be removed, is a cutting off that takes away any possibility of bearing fruit at all or even of being pruned since the branch has been removed. Now you see what Jesus does. Jesus uses this picture of the vine and the vine dresser, which is so familiar to his Jewish audience, of course, because they live in that kind of environment. In fact, the Old Testament, uh, we just read in Isaiah 5 and 27, speaks of Israel as a vine. And so Israel, the Jewish people of the, 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 the time of our Lord Jesus Christ, are very familiar with what Jesus is describing. It's not something abstract to them. And so verse 2 is very clear cut. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. But how do we explain in verse 2 when it says every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away? How do we explain the in me, in Jesus, in Christ? Because that's what he means. Every branch in me that doesn't bear fruit is cut off. Well, uh, it makes sense only in the sense of one who says they have life in Christ, who profess to belong to Christ, but in reality are not believers because there's no fruit 
evident at all in their life. And the New Testament, by the way, uses that kind of uh, understanding of believers who make a profession, or people who make a profession, that they are Christians, when in reality they might not be Christians. So warnings are given, just not only to them, but also to believers, to make sure that they are really in Christ. But if you're not in Christ, and you say you are in Christ, then you experience this cutting off. You don't belong at all in the first place. And the picture of the vine and the vine dresser and fruit bearing is this Old Testament picture from Isaiah 5 and Isaiah 27. And in Isaiah 5, you discover that Israel is the vine. And when God comes to the vine and he looks at the vine, it's fruitless. Israel is producing no spiritual life. There is no fruit at all. And therefore, because they are fruitless, they come under the judgment of God. And to put it another way, Israel is not the true vine. Jesus is the true vine. The branches in the Old Testament represented by that vine, Israel in the Old Testament, are fake and false which gives the picture that Jesus presents here of false profession, of pretenses to believing, of being a pretender and not a possessor of life from the vine. By the way, this is such a common occurrence in the church everywhere that there are, of course, the wheat and the tares that exist side by side, Jesus says, and at the end, at the judgment, that will be sorted out there'll be a distinguishing between the sheep and the goats as it were so this picture of Israel in Isaiah chapter 5 is a picture of fruitlessness they're not producing what they were expected to produce but when you look at Jesus Jesus makes this statement in verse 1 I am the true vine I am the true vine and by the way this is the last of the great I am statements that Jesus makes in John's Gospel. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth and the life. I am the true vine. All I am statements made by Jesus. Do you know that every single I am statement that Jesus makes in John's Gospel are all indicative of a saving relationship between Jesus and his people. Every time Jesus says, I am the door, it's in reference to those who have entered the door. When he says, I am the good shepherd, it is indicative of those who are his sheep, who belong to him and he cares for them. When he says, I am the resurrection and the life, it is indicative of his people who will be raised to new life and so on. I am the way, the truth and the life. Only those who have come to Jesus experience the saving relationship with him. And that I am statement by Jesus, of course, has its roots in the Old Testament, doesn't it? In Exodus chapter 3 and verse 14. You remember how Moses turned aside to see the burning bush and discovered that it was God who spoke to him from the bush that wasn't consumed with the fire. And then when he he gets his commission to go to Egypt and to confront Potiphar, I mean Pharaoh, about uh, delivering or setting my people free. Well, who shall I say has sent me? Moses wants to know. And what does God say to him? Exodus 3 verse 14. I am that I am. 
Tell them that I am has sent you. I am that I am. The self-existing, unchanging, ever-present, eternal God. Tell them that's who sent you, Pharaoh. The, ever the unchanging, ever-present, eternal God. Where Israel fails, Isaiah 5, Jesus shall not. Jesus shall not fail. He is the true vine. And because he's the true vine, his people, his disciples, will prove that they really are his. That they really belong to him. How will they prove that? They will prove it by bearing fruit in their lives. So here's a question. Are you bearing fruit in your life? Simple question. This is what Jesus wants to know in this passage about fruit bearing. In order to bear fruit, there has to be a pruning process in your life, a refining process, a cutting back process, a getting rid of all the stuff that's not necessary, unwanted, so that there can be more fruit produced in your life. But you will notice that there's more, right, in the text. In order to bear fruit, uh, not only must I be pruned, but I must remain in the vine. Look at verse 4. Jesus says, abide in me. It's the word for remain. And you could trans, uh, put that translation in. Remain in me, abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. So if you want to bear fruit, not only must you be undergoing a pruning process in your life, but you must be remaining, abiding in Christ himself. That word abide, to stay, to continue in the same course, to remain. Jesus uses it, by the way, in chapter 15 here, nine times. The Apostle John uses it seven times in his epistles. Abide, 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 remain, remain, remain. Notice verse 5, that I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Now you'll notice that the pruning process brings more fruit, but the remaining process brings much fruit. And Jesus uses two different words, comparative words, more and much. So if you undergo the pruning process, you start to bear more fruit. But if you undergo and remain in that process, you will bear much fruit, Jesus says. So here we have a, a word to us to remain or to abide in Christ. To remain in Him. If you go down to verse 8, it says also, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. Now notice that. If you remain in Christ, you are proving that you are a Christian. If you remain in Christ, you are proving that you are a Christian. If you walk away from the gospel, if you say, well, I don't believe that anymore, you were never in Christ, never in the vine, and therefore the branch is cut off and you are cast away. And so there's very serious words that Jesus is saying here to the people that are listening to him and to his disciples. And notice that this abiding, remaining, bears or brings about much fruit. 
And that's supported by the qualifying statement. Notice the end of verse 5. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. And now look at what Jesus qualifies that with. Because apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Nothing. How much do you do in your own strength? Think about it. How much do you engage in living your Christian life, doing whatever it is you do in your own strength? Jesus says, apart from me, you can do zero. Nothing. Not one single thing can be done unless you abide in me, Jesus says. So, to bear much fruit, I have to be remaining in Christ, undergoing a pruning process, and not only that, leaning totally for dependence, strength upon Christ himself. Because apart from me, Jesus says, you can do nothing. Now you either believe that, or you don't. And if you don't believe it, you're going to do everything in your own power. You're going to do everything in your own strength. How sad, when you have the vine who gives life, spiritual life, to you, who prunes you, the Father, and who causes us to remain in Him so that we bear more fruit, and if we depend upon Him, we shall discover that we bear much fruit for Him. You cannot bear fruit unless you remain in Jesus. How sad it is that there have been many people, right, throughout the centuries who have said they belong to Christ and then have abandoned Christ, who have been false pretenders, who have been false professors, and not possessors of Christ, but just simply professors of Christ. The church is full of them everywhere. Those who say they are Christians, but are not. Those who would say, well, I'm a good person. <laughs> the Bible tells us there's nobody who's good. Not one single person is good. There's nobody who understands. There's nobody who seeks after God. All have gone astray. Everyone has turned to their own way. How can anybody claim that they are a good person? In fact, that very claim disqualifies them completely in the sight of God. Because the confession should be, I am not good. I am ruined. Woe is me. I am undone. I am guilty. I am sinful. I need mercy. I need grace. I need sacrifice. The only sacrifice that Jesus has made. That's what we must say. Why is it that without me, Jesus, I can do nothing? Because Jesus is the life. Jesus is the source. I go to Him. Isn't that what you do, by the way, when you have your daily devotions? You read God's Word. Why do you read God's Word? That you might hear from your Heavenly Father. That you might hear from your Savior the words that He has spoken. Because those words, Jesus says, my words are life. I want life. I want bread. I want food. I want to be satisfied spiritually. It's only the words of Christ that cleanse me in that pruning process and that give me this life. And so life is in the vine. It is not in the branches. We have life only because we are connected to Christ himself. Branches that are dead, he says, that don't bear fruit, they are cut off. And being cut off, by the way, does nothing to the vine. Life remains in the vine. But a dead branch, a professor of faith in Jesus, 
is removed from the vine. So the vine gives life to the branch, and it does so so that the branch might bear fruit. So this is the work of the Father. Don't you like that? God is at work. The Father is at work in your life. He's the vine dresser. The Legacy Standard Version says He's the vine grower. How does that happen? He prunes. He prunes. More growth. More fruit. So we read those verses in Isaiah 27, verses 2 and 3. The Lord is the keeper of the vineyard. Every moment I water it. I water it. I'm the vine dresser. I'm the vine grower, God says. I water it. I give it life. The Apostle Paul reminded the Corinthians in chapter 3 of his first epistle, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. God's field. That word field is a field under cultivation that's been tilled and worked related to the vine dresser. So let me give you some points about what we know so far. Your fruit bearing, your bearing fruit as a Christian, number one, is dependent upon the pruning work of the Father. Your fruit bearing is dependent upon the Father pruning your life, working in your life, number one. Number two, your fruit bearing is dependent upon abiding in Jesus. Remaining in the Lord Jesus Christ. The abiding presence of Christ. Because, verse 5, without me you can do nothing, Jesus says. So we cannot bear fruit then unless we submit ourselves to our Heavenly Father. To His pruning process. That means I come to God and I say to God, Lord, do your pruning work in me. Why? It's not a bad thing. It may be painful, it's true. But the result is, you will bear more fruit. Isn't that what we want as Christians? To demonstrate that we are Christians by our fruit bearing? In fact, that is the only evidence that there has that you really are a Christian. You produce fruit. So we must invite the pruning process, the pruning work of our Heavenly Father. And that might be a very painful process for some of us. And it's dependent, this bearing fruit, on Jesus remaining in us and us remaining in Jesus. Now, is Jesus just going to abandon his people? No. No, of course not. But unless I abide in the vine, I cannot bear fruit. You notice that unless I have Christ, unless I yield to Christ, I can do nothing. Unless I abide in Christ, I remain outside. I must be in Christ. I must remain in Him and abide in Him. Because without abiding, there is no bearing of fruit. So this means one thing. Only a Christian and only a believer. If you are a believer this morning, you can bear fruit. Why? Because the Father prunes your life. And secondly, Jesus abides and remains in you. Those who don't bear fruit, verse 2, he takes away. He cuts them off. He removes them. And those who don't abide in Jesus, if you look at verse 6, for some further words, verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered 
thrown into the fire and burned. Well, that's, that's quite serious, isn't it? Cut off, verse 2, and now in verse 6, thrown away, wither, become like dry twigs, and then the branches are gathered up, thrown into the fire, and burned to nothing. Gone. That's just a picture of divine judgment, isn't it? That's just in this, this chapter of pictures, another picture of what happens to a false professor, to an unbeliever for sure, but to a false professor, no life, no remaining, thrown away, withers, becomes dead, and is cast into the fire and burned up. Just simply a picture of God's wrath and God's judgment. So now, let's just take a step back from the passage, from what we've said. Let's ask ourselves some very pertinent questions. What is the fruit? What does it look like? I mean, Jesus says, you bear much fruit. Well, what is that? Am I a fruit bearer? It's a good question, right? What is a fruit bearer like? Am I bearing fruit? which would point to ultimately the question of, am I really a Christian or not? Because if I really am a Christian, I'm bearing fruit. If I'm not a Christian, I'm not bearing fruit. It's just as simple as that. So the first first point we can make when we answer or try to deal with these questions, which are all very similar and very related, the first point we can make is that in John 15, fruit bearing is an identification marker. It separates You either have fruit or you don't. You either possess fruit, producing fruit, or nothing. So it's an identification marker. It separates. So those who bear fruit in John 15 are believers, and only believers. Those who don't bear fruit, notice verse 2, they're removed. Notice verse 4, they don't abide in the vine. And notice verse 6, they're cast into the fire and burned. Just this progressive step of removal. Now, we know that fruit is evidence in a person's life of what they're like. And in fact, the Bible uses that kind of distinction over and over again. For instance, John the Baptist, when the crowds were coming to him to be baptized, you remember what he said. He says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, is your repentance genuine? Is your repentance real? Don't you be coming here to be baptized if you are not genuinely repentant. Because if you are genuinely repentant, there will be fruit. There will be evidence of that repentance. What kind of evidence is that? Sorrow for sin. Grief for sin. Right? That's what John is looking for. When they came to him in the droves, he said in In Matthew 3, verse 10, John the Baptist, he said, Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Sounds exactly like Jesus, what Jesus says. Every tree that does not bear fruit, he cuts down and throws it into the fire. And Jesus, of course, as you know, very clearly made these kinds of distinctions about fruit bearing when he identified false prophets and their fruits. And I want to show you that. So go back with me to Matthew chapter 7 first. Matthew. So look with me in Matthew chapter 7. So we're talking about identification markers. 
So here's what Jesus says, Matthew 7, 15 through 20. Matthew 7, 15. He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. They look like Christians. They look like believers. They look like sheep. But they're not sheep. They're wolves, he says. They're false prophets. Okay, well, how am I going to know that they're false prophets if they look like sheep? It's a good question, right? Jesus says you will recognize them by their fruits, by evidence. Are grapes, verse 16, gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? It's a rhetorical question, right? No, that's the answer. Of course not. Verse 17, so every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. Now remember, he's relating this to false prophets. False prophets, bad fruit, right? A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, verse 18, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. There's no confusion between the true prophet and the false prophet, between the genuine and the false or the hypocrite. There's no confusion. It's clear. The fruit of their lives will be evident, will manifest itself sooner or later, and a healthy tree doesn't bear bad fruit, diseased fruit, and a good tree doesn't produce bad fruit. Every tree, verse 19, that does not bear fruit, good fruit, is cut down and thrown into the fire. So what kind of fruit must you produce so that you don't get thrown in the fire? Good fruit. Good fruit. But the false prophet, the wolf in sheep's clothing, he produces diseased fruit, and that fruit is cut off, or that life is cut off, every tree that doesn't bear good fruit, cut down and thrown into the fire. Verse 20, thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Okay, now, what is a false prophet all about? False teaching. I mean, how are you going to recognize a false prophet? By what he tells you. By what he teaches from the Word. He's saying things that the Word doesn't say. He's a false prophet. So in the Old Testament, you have true prophets and you have false prophets. And the true prophets and the false prophets both claimed to speak in the name of the Lord. And yet, the true prophet is always identified as his words coming true and the false prophet whose words fail and fall to the ground are false. And so too in the New Testament church, false teachers exist who look like sheep, convey themselves as sheep, but are preaching a gospel that is not redemptive. A Jesus that is another Jesus. A word that has nothing to do with the word of God. That's everywhere in our pulpits around the country. Everywhere. Jesus says, you listen, you read what they say, you recognize them by their fruits. They're false. And they will be cut off and burned, judged by God himself. So Jesus immediately, notice verse 21 in Matthew 7, he immediately goes into, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So here are people who are saying, Lord. Jesus says there are many people who are going to say, Lord, Lord, but they're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. So who gets to enter the kingdom? Look at verse 21. 
but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And on that day, many people are going to say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. Why? Because you are a worker of lawlessness. So, in the rest of the passage, Jesus says the wise man, the believer, builds his house on the rock. The unbeliever, the foolish man, builds his house on the sand, and it is destroyed. And this is just all the same picture of Jesus making a distinction in the profession of people, just like he does for us this morning. (coughs) Now, Look at Matthew 13. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> so Matthew chapter 13, verse 18. So it's clear Jesus has divided people into two groups. Now in Matthew 13, verse 18, here's the explanation of Jesus and the parable of the sower and the seed, right? So I want you to listen to some of the language, the words Jesus says. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom, does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word, immediately receives it with joy, in other words, says they believe, yet... He has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and look what the result. It proves unfruitful. No fruit. As for what was sown, verse 23, on good soil, this is the one who hears the word, understands the word. He he indeed bears fruit. You see that? So the one who hears the word is the only one who bears fruit. And some cases it yields a hundredfold, another sixty, another thirty. Doesn't matter the quantity. Bearing fruit. Everybody else, no fruit. Unfruitful. Nothing. No life. In Christ, no life in the vine. Apostle Paul reminds the Romans in chapter 7 that as regarding our former life, he says, we used to live in the lusts of the flesh and bear fruit thereby. In other words, the fruit in our previous life was of the flesh and not of the Spirit and not of Christ. So before I'm a Christian, Yes, I'm bearing fruit, but it's not this fruit. It's fruit unto death. It's fruit unto wrath. It's sinful fruit. It's evil fruit. It's sin. But that's not what Jesus is asking of us and talking about when he says fruit. We must be fruit bearers. So we have to say that in the Bible, fruit bearing makes a distinction between people. They're either bearing this fruit or that fruit. That's the first thing. The second thing is the Christian, every Christian, without exception, is in a sanctifying process, in a cleansing process. 
Or, if you like, in John 15, a pruning process. Every Christian, without exception, every Christian is in this cleansing, sanctifying process. And it is that process that will enable you, if you yield to it, to produce more fruit. To produce more fruit. It stresses dependence on Christ. On whom are you depending to bear fruit? Yourself? Apart from me, Jesus says you can do nothing. You do nothing in yourself. We need Christ. Thirdly, now here's, here's where you start to see the fruit manifest itself. Okay, John 15. First of all, this fruit in John 15 shows itself, look at verse 7, by praying in faith. So verse 7, Jesus says, If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. I mean, just think how staggering that verse is. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. But what's he talking about? He's talking about asking God, praying, right? Believing prayer. So, here's a first evidence of fruit in this passage. It has to do with your prayer life. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, then ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Now we know that when we pray, we must pray always according to the will of God. can't just pray my will. That's Jesus. Not my will, but thy will be done. And so, fruit is manifested by this dependence, abide in me, and my words remain in you, then ask whatever you wish, and it shall be done for you. So, fruit manifests itself, firstly, by believing prayer. Second, notice verse 9 and 10. Fruit manifests itself by a relationship of love that proves itself by obedience. So, verse 9 and 10. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. I mean, can you comprehend that? Who can comprehend the love of the Father for the Son? Right? Yet, Jesus says, it's the same between me and you. Same love. And then he says, uh, If you keep my commandments, verse 10, you will abide in my love as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So notice here's a relationship of love, Father and Son, Jesus and believers. And that love is proven by keeping my commandments. Now here's the question. Do you keep his commandments? Because that's the fruit that Jesus is talking about. Do you believe when you pray that God will do what you ask of him? That's the fruit that Jesus is talking about. So, praying in faith and a an obedience that is motivated by love, right? Thirdly, verse 11, fruit-bearing manifests itself by a life of overflowing joy. I mean, look what Jesus says. These things I have spoken to you. Here's, these are my words, Jesus is saying. I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. Wow. Wow. Notice that my joy, being full, is completely dependent on the joy of Jesus in me. That my joy may be in you, and as a result of that, your joy may be full. 
believing prayer, loving obedience, and abundant joy. Fruit. If you abide in me. If you abide in me, the Father is going to be doing some work in your life. You pray more, you obey more because you love, and you're filled with this abundant joy, the joy of Jesus. I mean, that's what a fruit-bearing Christian looks like. So, notice, believing prayer has to do with my requests, what I ask of God. Loving obedience has to do with my relationship to God, to Jesus. And abundant joy has to do with my response to Christ, who has done this for me. So, let's just make it simple. This is a picture of a Christian. What does a Christian look like? A Christian prays, a Christian obeys, and a Christian is joyful. That's a Christian. And you know, I've met some very sad people who say they're Christians. Very miserable people who say they're Christians. And I ask myself, how is the joy that Jesus says is in you coming out? Because not, doesn't, you don't appear to be joyful. So a marker of whether I am truly a Christian is I'm a joyful person. Now I know we all go through ups and downs. What Jesus means is when you're in the down, my joy is in you. It hasn't gone. My joy is in you. What are you going to do with it? You're going to live moping about yourself? Or are you going to cast your sufferings, cast your afflictions, cast your trials, cast your troubles, cast your sufferings on Jesus? Because unless you do that, you're not going to experience the fullness of his joy at all. So, a Christian is someone who prays and obeys and rejoices. And at the top of the whole pile is this joy. It's the pinnacle. It's like the Mount Everest. You get to the top of Everest... You look around, there are no other peaks higher. You're at the top. You're at the top in verse 11. But all these other things, believing prayer, loving obedience, are there as well. And they all meet together at the top of the mountain in this overflowing joy. <coughs> and notice in verse 11 that your joy, my joy, our joy, is not produced by us. I don't produce this joy. It's the joy of Christ, right? It's Jesus' joy. You know, when I read John 15, verses 1 through 11, do you know how much depends on Jesus in these verses? In relationship to me. It doesn't depend on me per se, but on Him. For instance, my abi abiding, my obeying, my praying, my loving, my joy. Or all, unless you abide in me. Nothing. And not only that, but Jesus promises, verse 7, my words. Verse 8, you'll be my disciples. Verse 9, my love. Verse 10, my commandments. Verse 11, my joy. I mean, look what Jesus gives to us. All of these things. John Owen said that God and all that he is, is our chiefest joy. Is God your chiefest joy? What is it that gives you joy? Making money? Pleasure? Recreation? Sport? Movies? 
What is it that gives you your chiefest joy? If it's not God, it's not joy. It's some hedonistic pleasure for yourself. This is what God, this is what Jesus is looking for, His joy in us. So we confess with the catechisms, right? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to what? Enjoy Him forever. That starts now when I'm a Christian. <laughs> it doesn't start when I get to glory. When I get to glory, it's just an ex fuller expression of what has already been working in my heart and my life. Now nobody says, I'm not giving you the Christian life here as an easy life. <laughs> That's, that, far be it from me, I'm not saying that because narrow is the way. Hard is the way. Few there be that are on that way. It's not an easy road to heaven. It's narrow. And it's filled with trouble. Filled with trials. Filled with afflictions. Filled with sufferings. But you know what? I'm on that road with King Jesus. Who had the nth degree of afflictions and trials and sufferings. He says, come with me. I'll be with you through it all. I'll bring you home. And when you get home, you shall see me in my Father's glory. And you'll be like me. That starts now, today. Right now, that should be our, our, our life. Notice verse 11, it's about my present joy. Not tomorrow. But right now, that Jesus' joy may be in me. Right now, not tomorrow, but now. And tomorrow, and the next day. And yes, there will be future joy, will there not? On a level you cannot comprehend when you're with Christ. To bearing fruit is done in the possession of this joyful life. Life in Christ. Jesus placed no limits on his joy. Did he? No. Look what he says in verse 11. He says that your joy may be full. No limits to my joy in you. That's what Jesus says. He places no limits. Ah, so I find it, I personally, I, I must confess, I find it hard when Christians complain. I like to complain. If I complained in your hearing all the time, you'd say, what kind of pastor is that? Doesn't he believe what he preaches? No, I do believe the word. I do believe what I preach. I do know it's hard. I do know it's difficult. I know exactly what that's like. But if we complain, if we are miserable, if we are angry, if we lack mercy, we are joyless. I don't want to be joyless. I want to bring my trials to Jesus. And I want him to bear the burden with me. Because he promises to do that. I've thought of preaching on the joyful Christian, you know. But I'm already doing that this morning. So I'm covering two in one stone. Isn't the fruit of the Spirit love, joy, peace, and so on, right? The fruit of the Spirit. Isn't the Spirit in the believer? Of course it is. 
That's what the Spirit is doing, producing this fruit in us. The Apostle Paul writes to the Ephesians and he tells them that the fruit of light is to be found in everything that is good and right and true. The fruit of light. Walk as children of the light, he says. He prayed for the Philippians that they would be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes to them through Jesus Christ. Philippians 1 verse 11. Doesn't the writer to the Hebrews in chapter 12 tell us that discipline is a very painful process at the present moment, but over time it will yield the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who are trained by it. I'm in the training process, the discipline process, the pruning process. Finally, notice in verse 8. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. So bearing fruit, much fruit, proves that you really are a Christian. No fruit, not a Christian. Fruit bearing, prove that you are my disciples. So a Christian then is described by Jesus as someone who is always bearing fruit. Always bearing fruit, Jesus says. And it is the fruit that reveals that you are a true Christian. Now notice how Jesus identified himself. I am the true vine. Meaning, there are false vines. Didn't Jesus talk about false Christs and false messiahs and false prophets and all of that? I am the true vine. So, true disciples are only connected to the true vine to the Lord Jesus Christ. So, how beautiful are the words when Jesus says, and so prove to be my disciples, my believers, my people, mine, my Christians. You prove to be mine, Jesus says, by bearing fruit and remaining in the Father. That's what Jesus said in John 8, 31. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. John 13, 35. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one to another. My disciples. Are you his disciple? Let me give you three points of application. Number one, the key, the key of all of this, of course, is abiding. The key to fruit bearing is to abide in Christ. So number one, abiding always leads to productive action. Because isn't that what fruit bearing is? It shows itself. It reveals itself. It demonstrates itself. You can see it in action by their fruits. You shall recognize them, what you observe, what you see. So abiding in Christ leads to productive action. You can see that in verse 5 and verse 7. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Verse 7, if you abide in me, my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. That's the first thing, productive action. Number two, to abide in Jesus enjoys intimate association. Abiding enjoys intimate association. What kind of association? The love of the Father and the love of the Son, right? Verse 9, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. 
abide in my love. If you keep, verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments, abide in his love. So notice that abiding means you maintain a living relationship with the Father and the Son. And of course the Holy Spirit who indwells us. Thirdly, abiding reflects a consistent application. Because fruit bearing is obedience. Fruit bearing is obedience. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, if you keep my commandments, if you obey me, you will abide in my love. So let me give you a final word of warning. To abide, to bear fruit, to pray, to love, to obey, to rejoice. You have to be in me. In me, Jesus says. You want to be this kind of Christian? You have to be in me, right? You know, Jesus uses that phrase, in me, 26 times in the Gospel of John. That's once every chapter. 26 times in me. For example, whoever believes in me shall never thirst. John 6.35 Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. John 11.25 The one who believes in me shall never die. John 11.26 And here, in chapter 15, six times the phrase, Abide in me. Abide in me. You see, the key to bearing fruit is abiding in me. Abiding in Christ. So to not be in Christ is to be out of him, not in him. Are you in Christ? Are you in Christ? I pray that you are. Because such a person who is not in Christ, verse 2, is cut off because they're fruitless. And such a person in verse 6 is cast away into the fire because they're faithless. Are you fruitless and faithless? You see, to be in Jesus is to be fruitful and faithful. Production of fruit. Ongoing. So to remain in the Lord Jesus Christ is eternal life, is eternal joy. And to abide is to bear fruit over and over and over again. And so prove, Jesus says, to be my disciples. That's the fruitful Christian. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. These serious words from the lips of our Lord Jesus Christ in John 15 about being a fruitful Christian. Forgive us our many failures, our many sins. Deliver us from ourselves. Free us. May we be a people who come to you in believing prayer. May we be a people who, who cast themselves upon you, who obey you because we love you. And may we be a people who are just filled with your joy that we might live in this world which is filled with such sadness and sorrow and sin. Help us to overcome ourselves and to overcome our sins and to put them far from us and to lay hold of Jesus, to be in him, to prove it, that we are truly his disciples. So we thank you for your word and bless you and ask that it may be true of each one of us this morning that we have life in Christ. We have come to the cross. We have humbled ourselves. We have repented 
and we have believed the good news that Jesus loved us and gave himself for us in an an atonement that washes us and sets us free. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, because time has gone,